1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: My father criticized my indecisiveness. My wasting time at school without having a plan is more than just that he didn't want to pay the bills, and really he hadn't paid the bills. I had worked every summer, work-study every academic year. I had taken shitloads of student loans, and yes, Mom and Dad sent me hundreds of dollars here and there, but I had carried the load to what I think he saw as a wild gambit in Boston to this strange, faraway New England school without Mexicans. At graduation, my parents had been the foreigners, much darker than everybody else with awkward accents, intimidated next to my roommates, friends, and their casually suburban parents. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Sergio Troncoso, author of A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, in this collection of 13 stories, Troncoso explores emotions, situations, and memories of people who've either immigrated or whose parents immigrated to the United States from Mexico. From the El Paso region to New England and elsewhere, these immigrants and their children come to terms with life in the USA. Hi, Sergio. Thanks for joining me today.
2: Thank you for inviting me to your program, Galip.
0: So... Uh, What came first, the stories or the concept of a book of related stories?
2: The concept of the book of related stories. And it was all in, you know, this idea of mine in A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son to write about immigrants deep in the United States, uh, trying to find their, their way, their place in the United States, immigrants away from the border and different types of immigrants, you know, in places like Connecticut or New York or in the Midwest, and, uh, and the struggles that they faced to become a part of this country. Sometimes they would be successful in these struggles, and sometimes they would not be successful in these struggles. So my, my, my sense of the book first was almost like a concept album. Uh, I don't know if you remember Pink Floyd, The Wall? Of in, course. Which, in which all these songs sort of relate to a theme. Well, that was my idea with uh, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, and also to play with this issue of perspectivism.
0: Mm. One of the major themes is the idea of home, longing for home, hating home, returning home.
2: Can you talk more about that? Sure. So, you know, the, an immigrant is essentially crossing borders, and it's not just a physical border, it, although that's how many people see it, but it's also linguistic border from, let's say, Spanish to English, or a a philosophical or psychological border of coming into a country and trying to fit in, trying to find self-worth when sometimes in this adopted country that they love, that they want to be a part of, that uh, they're sometimes um, pushed aside or ignored or not considered full citizens. So this, this sense of uh, trying to come home, trying to make your home, trying to make the home that you choose is always a struggle. And so I wanted to depict that kind of struggle for a, a variety of different immigrants, from an immigrant who's educated to an immigrant who is just recently from Guatemala, for example, and trying to uh, get help for, for an abusive situation in their home.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned perspectivism. What do you mean by
2: that? Well, I, I have a graduate degree in philosophy from Yale, and I've always loved um, perspectivism, and it comes from primarily from Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher. And this is the idea that there's no some sort of absolute truth, but the truth is rooted in the perspectives that you adopt or that you are listening to or reading uh, about to get to a sense of truth. So all of us, for example, are many different selves. We're, I'm the self that grew up very poor along the border. I'm the self that teaches at Yale. I'm the self that can go from Spanish to English in one sentence. And I'm a husband, I'm a father. And so all of these bring up and make my identity. And so the struggle within me and within, I think, all of us is to create an identity out of these many different selves that we are. And, and so in, in this collection of, of 13 stories, you'll see characters appear and reappear in different stories from a different angle, from a different perspective. So you'll, you'll see, uh, for example, the first character, David Calderon, appears in a certain way going back home to, to Texas, although he's been away for a long time. And then in the next story, you'll see him where he lives now, in New England, very far away from the border. And you have a very different perspective and what happens in the story will give you a very different perspective on who David Calderon is. And, and I'm also playing with the perspective of the reader as a, a, a person that brings in software to appreciate or sometimes to um, be very negative toward a character. So I'm asking the reader, him and herself to appreciate what they bring into, let's say, liking a character or disliking a character. So some readers will start thinking, oh, I think I'm gonna like this character that appears in this first group of stories. And then the next, you hear from uh, this character later in another story from a very different angle. And it may be a little bit, uh, the reader might be taken aback by this character and say, you know, I thought I knew who this per- this character uh, was, but, I'm now getting a very different angle and I'm not so sure. And I think this is typical of perspectivism and and trying to understand the whole of any person. We all have very different uh, selves.
0: Yes, we do. Nearly every story conveys something about family and you covered a roller coaster of emotions. Did you leave anything out so that you can write more books?
2: (laughs) Well, I can always write more books. I'm working on a couple right now. But no, I, 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 you know, when I write, I am deeply embedded in my characters and in familias, you know, in, in how I grew up in El Paso. You know, I grew up very poor along the Mexican border. In fact, uh, less than a quarter of a mile from, from Mexico in Texas. And, and the values that I learned from my family are what helped me uh, go to places like Harvard and then Yale and then end up teaching at Yale. And often, you know, we look at these very poor communities, certainly along the border, these families, and we dismiss them as, as if they don't have anything to teach us, as if their values uh, don't have any kind of import into my life. Um, and I think that's a, a, a bad assumption to make. And I think one of the things that I have done as a writer throughout my career is point out how many of these immigrant values really renew the United States, renew American families, get, bring us back to this work ethic and this focus on families, and focus on on doing it yourself, on self-sufficiency and independence and self-determination. Some of these values that are at the bedrock of our country that began with with the pilgrims when they came to a place like Connecticut, where I am now, and survived very brutal, difficult times in a, in a difficult landscape. And they did it by focusing on their families and focusing on what mattered right in front of them and, and creating um, those opportunities even when things were very tough. So, so that's, I guess, my, my spiel, so to speak, on, on why I focus on families so much. Because my family meant so much to me and still means so much to me from El Paso. And, and and it's not like I don't have criticisms, as you as, you know you I'm sure you saw in in the different collections of stories. There's some things I valued and loved from my families, and some things that I discarded, and I felt I uh, I didn't want to follow that particular uh, value or or that particular practice. So it's always this hybrid, and I think any immigrant will understand this. You know, you're you're making yourself creating this identity as you go borrowing from here, and then discarding from there, and then a, and then also using the values you learn from your family, the best one, to make a new American identity.
0: It sounds not just like an immigrant, it sounds just very human. Your characters convey a lot of emotions about they, where they are geographically, like you were just speaking about um, the El Paso border, Boston, where you were at Harvard, or Connecticut, where you went to grad school at Yale. So, can you talk a little bit about the geography, the significance of geography or place
2: in your writing? Well, uh, the, you know, the, the first place that has always meant so much to me is uh, a little the little town of Isleta. Isleta is Y S L E T A, and this was on, on the outskirts of El Paso. It was really a rural area. Uh, maybe about 2,000 people or so. And it and it had a, uh, you know, when my parents came over in the 50s as, as Mexican immigrants, it, you know, we didn't have uh, electricity. Uh, we had an outhouse in the backyard, which we dug ourselves, and cotton fields in front of us and a horse farm not far from our house, in fact, just uh, across an irrigation canal. And so this landscape for me was very stark, but also a, a playground. That that, as I have described in some interviews, it was like a Mexican version of Tom Sawyer, and Huckleberry Finn. I would go and fishing and and walking to the to the desert, to cotton field, and this this expansiveness that you see in the far west Texas certainly meant a lot to me um, in terms of, for example, humility. I I, I believe that the landscape created that sense that I am just a small part in this huge world with huge mountains and this incredible sky in West Texas that you can see forever. And, and, and so that, that landscape had that kind of dramatic effect on me. And when I went to, you know, to, to the East Coast, I had never been to Massachusetts. Uh, this was before the Common App. And so when I landed at Logan Airport in Boston, and the cab driver drove me to to Harvard Square, I'd never been to Harvard, I'd never been to Massachusetts, so it shocked me. The greenery, the the that landscape of almost like a forest surrounding the school, at least it seemed to me it was a forest, because I grew up in the desert. And, and there was sort of another love of it, but also the, the danger of the forest, the danger of being in a in a foreign place uh, where you're the only you know, Mexican in your dorm, and suddenly you speak with an accent, whereas in El Paso you did not have an accent because everybody or eighty percent of the population is Mexican. So the the landscapes, as I traversed them, and 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 got used to them, and sometimes fought with them, had a very profound effect on my on my character right here where I'm, I'm speaking now from Kent, Connecticut. And one of the things I love about Kent is the forest, the bears, the deer, the bobcats. You know, the, the fact that um, you are surrounded by this, uh, be- you know, beautiful nature, but also sometimes dangerous. And it's a very different kind of danger than in the desert. But for me, that's, that sense of adventure, of not knowing exactly what's behind those trees, and what's around your house um, is, uh, is thrilling and, and is really the source of mystery. So, so for me, that's how the landscape, I hope I, I answered your, your question, Galit, has mm-hmm. affected my writing.
0: Yeah. In several stories, you mentioned an amazing grandmother who survived the Mexican Revolution. Is she based on a real character and you, can you say more about her?
2: Yes. So the the grandmother often in in many of my stories and certainly in a peculiar kind of immigrant son, um, I mention her in Eternal Return, which is the last story, in the collection, is is based loosely on my my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Doña Dolores Rivero, and she was my my hero. She was the person that in many ways made me into a writer. I would as a as an eighth and ninth grader, I would bike from Isleta, which is on the outskirts of El Paso, all the way 15 miles to downtown El Paso to a tenement where she lived. And she was this tough-as-nails older lady who the fa- the family lore was that she had shot and killed two men who attempted to rape her. And she was... My parents were afraid of her. She ran her household with an iron fist. <laughs> if my grandfather... Who was a very jovial and, and funny man did not hand over his his check or, or money from being a gardener. My grandmother would turn around and hit him with a broomstick on the head. Uh, she was she had survived a tough situation during the Mexican Revolution, and that's how she ran her life. And for for me, this it, she was a, a character come to life. Who was my grandmother, who was a great oral storyteller, and would tell us and tell you know her grandson these violent, exciting stories about the Mexican Revolution. And she also did not filter anything out, um, which I loved. She she told me these exciting stories that were true about her life and how she survived. And so when I was when I was at Harvard and and had gone there, you know, really clueless, and my parents by the way never visited me at Harvard until I graduated. So I was really there alone. Um, and I called her and I wanted to quit. My grandmother um, told me over the phone, she said, Sergio, in Spanish, she said, Sergio, don't come back with your tail between your legs. Show them who you are. So of course, my grandmother didn't know what Harvard was. She had no clue even where it was in Boston, but she understood how to fight. She understood how to fight for your place. And she had that grit and determination that, that, I, that many people say she passed on to me. And, and so, so these grandmother characters um, that appear in Eternal Return and other stories in, in my collection, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, are often based on her because I think readers have a lot to learn from someone like that, someone who survived, who really wants the best for you, but is not going to make any excuses for you or for herself. She is this truth-telling person that, that is always in my head and has been very important in my life as a writer. And I keep going back to her because I, I don't want people to forget her and I don't want to forget her.
1: slash nbn50 to get
2: 50% off.
0: Maybe she'll get her own book one day from
1: you.
2: (laughs) Okay. Many people have asked me to do that, and one of these days I think I will do it.
0: Mm. Several of your characters are men in their 50s, as you are, unless you're older, and two of them, David and Carlos, are married to Jewish women whose parents weren't happy with their decisions to marry a Mexican-American. So my actual question is, why was the problem that the men were of Mexican descent rather than that they were from a different religion?
2: Well, it's you know, in in I mean, I, I don't think there's a easy answer to that. I think in David's case, um, you know, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of Davis and Carlos Garcia, the two characters you mentioned, and, and they're a little different. Um, I, I think the issue was. For their their conflict within their their intermarriage was not so much that uh, that you know their their spouses were were Jewish, uh, but it was you know that they were just from a different place, from a different uh, community, and and not from the border. On the other hand, you know on on for you know for Carlos Garcia, uh, his spouse Sarah Monshine you know, does know some Spanish and she can relate to um, Carlos's parents. And so I think that has helped um, bridge that border. And all of us are crossing different borders. Um, And it's not just Carlos Garcia and David Calderon crossing borders to, um, you know, to, to marry someone who's outside of their Culture and/or religion, um, and I think the other issue is that David and Carlos are not that religious. They're not. They're they're basically leaving behind the Catholic religion in many ways, and and so they don't particularly put religion at the forefront of their decision, nor is it at the forefront of of the any kind of conflict or, or problems that they have in in their in, intermarriage. Mm,
0: that was so interesting because. It happened to both of them. Yeah. But marriage is a, is a big theme in, in the book. Men and women who love and lose their spouses, cheat on their spouses, harm their spouses. Can you say more about marriage?
2: Well, you know, it is, it is one of the most important things that happens to or doesn't happen to a person, their love affair, who they're with, what how that person shapes them. And and by the way, one of the interesting things, because even I, as a um, as a writer, Mexican American from um, from the border, I've written for Hadassah Magazine, in part to um, explore. I have some apparently some Sephardic Jewish roots that I found out later um, after some research, and and so so for me, you know, we are all sort of this amalgam of all our influences. And marriage is one of the, those things that deeply change you. It, it can also make you question where you came from. It can also um, make you appreciate where you came from. And I'll give you a story. Uh, because some of, some of these characters are certainly based on me. My wife is Jewish, and, and I met her at Harvard. And when, we, um, when I first brought her home to meet my parents in El Paso, um, my parents would sit on the porch, and I you know and I introduced them and my 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 wife had learned spanish in in school, so she could talk to them and they loved my my wife Laura Laura, and could and they loved her in part in, in part because she spoke Spanish beautifully and I was sort of a kind of a a tough um, character with my parents. I had this love hate relationship with them. And, she, and they would describe my wife or my girlfriend at the time as suavecita, which means really easygoing. And so in many ways, my wife got along better with my parents than I got along with my parents. And so the first time I, I brought her to, to meet my parents as a, as a senior in, in college, uh, my parents would sit in front of their porch, on their, on their little porch in Isleta, and would have what they call la hora social, the social hour, just drinking coffee on their porch. Neighbors would come by and say hello. And, and it was sort of very uh, old-fashioned in a way. And I hated it. I wanted to go to the mall. I wanted to get out. I wanted to show Laura El Paso and, and Laura said, no, 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 I want to stay here and talk to your parents. This is great. I'm meeting the entire neighborhood and everyone's coming by and saying, hello, you can never get this in Boston. You, can, you don't get this in New York. So she loved the things that I did not like or could not tolerate in some way and got me to appreciate some things that um, that I had grown up with, but, but in, in some ways, you know, did not did not appreciate until I left and brought someone back who did. So, so marriage affected me in a way. I think in, in many ways it made me a much better person.
0: That's a lovely story. One grouping of your stories is about a man on the periphery who's only referred to by other people, which was really fascinating. So what interested you about Julio?
2: Oh, Julio, and in, in when he appears and reappears in different stories.
0: And he's always a man on the, he's always on the periphery. He never tells his own story.
2: Exactly. Well, well, Julio, you know, Julio Gonzalez, he's an immigrant who in, in you know, in the first story in Face to Face, for example, he is an immigrant who stock shelves at a supermarket. And he's someone you would ignore, someone you would just sort of say, this is how my I get my food. I go to the fancy uh, supermarket in, in Manhattan and I buy, um, you know, almonds or I buy uh, some fancy cheeses. And he's the guy stocking the shelves. And, and, and so in the first story, he's just that kind of immigrant. Perhaps someone you would have, a reader would have a lot of sympathy towards. And then later you find out in the next story, Yamika, that, you know, his, his his Guatemalan wife is coming to the police station to report Julio as being abusive toward him, toward her. And and so, so you have a very different perspective of Julio. In the first story, you have a much more sympathetic portrayal. And then once you hear from the Guatemalan wife and what she's trying to get the police to help her with Julio, is that he's abusive toward her. And he's also somewhat in love with um, you know, a younger niece that, in the family, and the wife knows this. And so, so you start getting sort of a darker picture of who Julio is. And, um, and, and, I, and I'm challenging the reader to, to ask him or herself to look at people and look at characters from many different angles and don't assume that uh, you know someone um, just because you feel you, you, you saw him in this place at the supermarket or in that place on the street and assume, oh, I understand who that person is. And you, you don't. And so it's a, in many ways a plea for curiosity. Just like, you know, I've lived with my wife for um, 30 years. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary and we were, went out for seven years. I still feel that I am no, you know, understanding and appreciating and, and, and learning from her. Uh, and I think we should take that intense curiosity toward every person we meet.
0: Mm. Congratulations, 30 years. That's no small achievement. I thought that story, Yamaka, the, was the most heartbreaking story because the wife is trying to, she's like, she's really upset and she's worried about what Julio is going to do. And not a single person there understands Spanish.
2: And, and that's the loneliness of the of the that Guatemalan immigrant. Her, her name is Jimena Garza, and uh, with an X, Jimena uh, Garza. And and that's the the problem with when you only know Spanish, and you need help from the authorities. You need the police to come and help you. Um, you're trapped. You're trapped in language. You're trying to break out to explain to a police officer that is that is. You know, she's trying to be helpful, a police officer, but she just doesn't understand what's going on with Jimena. So that, that entrapment um, is what is what Ximena's trying to break out of, not just in her marriage, but also in language. And, and it's, a, it's a tragic story because it happens every day. And in fact, that story I, I got from a, something similar that happened in New York from a, um, from a newspaper article I read.
0: Hmm. Yeah, but I, I didn't think the tragedy was that she could, yeah, that was a problem that she couldn't speak English. Why didn't they have somebody who spoke Spanish? It's, you know, what percentage of people in New York speak Spanish? It's huge.
2: They, they should, but it happens every day. They often don't.
0: So that's also something we can learn from that. Um, I found it interesting that medicines of different kinds play a role in several stories. How did you come to look at medicine as a literary or philosophical question?
2: Well, it's, it's about, you know, the, the body and trying to take care of your body and trying to um, make your body younger, so to speak. You know, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're referring to, for example, the story "A Living Museum of Love in which, you know, Carlos Garcia and, and his wife, Sarah, you know, they're trying to recapture that love of, of, of what they had when they were uh, younger. And so um, medicine played th- that role of, of simply trying to help them in a way. Maybe it wouldn't help them. Maybe it's not just medical. Maybe it's psychological that they, you know, that they are not connecting with each other the way they used to.
0: Okay. And then there was another one. Another story where medicine plays a role.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to remember which one you're referring to.
0: It involves um, an announcer, a television announcer.
2: Oh, face to face. Yeah, Ricky Quintana, the 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 um, the analyst in in biomedical research. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just a curious guy, <laughs> and I, you know, and I when I read something, and I also, you know, have often. Invested in the biomedical field personally. So um, you become an expert at certain medicines and what they do. And of course, Ricky Quintana, who works for Merrill Lynch, he uses his expertise to really me- meet out a sort of a vengeful uh, idea to a, a horrible announcer um, that he often looks at on TV that is very anti immigrant and very. Uh, anti-mexican and and it's just encouraging the hate that that you see in this country and so Ricky uses his knowledge of medicine to to get back at this announcer in a okay. in a secretive way
0: that was i think my favorite story i actually um finished reading it and ran to tell my husband and we both laughed about it. it <laughs> you must have giggled a little bit because it's kind of sly. But um, was that announcer based on anyone in real life?
2: Unfortunately, it wasn't. There are so many announcers like that. Okay. I mean, you can, you can look at from Rush Limbaugh to Tucker Carlson to, um, you know, who knows how many um, right-wing Anti-immigrant announcers there are in this country, but there are plenty. Unfortunately, I mean it could even be Laura Ingram, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's not not hard to find uh, the examples out there.
0: This isn't a political podcast, but we're just talking about announcers. Yeah, we're just or ta- anti-immigrant. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, did you have a favorite story in the collection? Well,
2: you know, maybe the last one, Eternal Return. Mm-hmm because it is this story that encapsulates Eternal Return, by the way, the Nietzschean concept that he uses uh, in perspectivism. And so that's the title of the, of the story. And it's also because it, it brings together how the, the main character, Vendo Clarida, is going back and forth through time and going even through matter. And so it has this magical, realistic quality to it, this surreal quality to it. And he's talking to his dead grandmother about um, what has happened in his life. So it's Eternal Return, that last story, is that story that tries to bring bring everything together in terms of the playing with time and perspective and and the border and leaving the border and trying to come back home. And if you can come back home, that question also always hangs in the air in Eternal Return.
0: So what are you working on next?
2: Well, I have a new novel coming out uh, called Nobody's Pilgrims that will be out in the spring of 2021. And I'm also uh, the editor of a new anthology of Mexican-American literature of families in between worlds called Nepantla Familia. Nepantla is an Aztec word. And that'll be coming out also in the spring of 2021.
0: Ooh, you're going to be busy. I wish you a huge amount of luck in th- with this book. I hope lots of people read it, and I look forward to hearing, hearing when the new books come out. Maybe we can have another conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Galit, you were wonderful, and I appreciate all your questions, and thank you for having me on your podcast.